Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Michael Stott. Now Michael is a director at QV Controls Limited, one of the world's leading lighting system integrators and technical service providers based over in Dunstable, Bedfordshire. Uh, Michael, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you, Scott. Absolute pleasure having you. Now, uh, Michael, good and effective leadership is under the microscope uh, very much um, in the uh, the current climate, of course, with the whole fallout of COVID-19. Um, tell me, how has it been for yourselves at QV Controls over the past few weeks? Um, well, we, we've all managed to actually uh, continue working. Uh, obviously, with technology as it is, uh, it's very simple to uh, to continue uh, uh, with meetings, Skype, all, all the various uh, platforms that we can use. So it hasn't affected us. It's mainly affected our customers because we, we have quite a broad range of, uh, of clients across the UK. Absolutely. And um, in this um, time um, as well, um, it's not just a challenging time, of course, for businesses, but also for uh, governments as well. And we have seen some very contrasting approaches in terms of leadership in that sense. Um, Until um, very recently um, here in the UK, Boris Johnson, who has tested positive for coronavirus today, incidentally, um, was taking much of a less hands-on approach, as it were, compared to the likes of Giuseppe Conte in Italy and Xi Jinping in China, who were very proactive in shutting their countries down, going into lockdown quite quickly quickly, whereas we were very much sort of waiting to see what happens before then implementing a stringent measures, as it were. Um, taking that away from politics and taking that away from crisis, Michael, and which approach would you generally prefer to take as a leader when dealing with difficulties yourself? Do you tend to try and get on top of the situation as soon as possible, diving straight in, or do you tend to let things play out just a little bit more, see how matters develop, and then take the relevant action? No, I'd, I'd like to take a, a very proactive role. Uh, uh, if there is a problem, deal with it directly, show leadership, lead by example. And uh, it's attention to detail at the end of the day. The uh, the customer, he will know that there's a problem and it's how you deal with the problem and get the, the whole team motivated to actually uh, resolve the problem as fast as possible to everybody's satisfaction. Absolutely. So you'd say that that very proactive lead by example sort of style is very much your way of leading. Absolutely. Absolutely. The buck stops at the top and my team all work very, very tightly together to make sure that our customers are very happy. That's fantastic. And in terms of a leader who has a team around them like yourself does, um, does it then fall upon um, the leader's shoulders to create um, an environment of positivity, of motivation, so that you can get the best out of those around you as well? Because fundamentally, it's a team effort as well as just one man or one woman leading the whole show, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Uh, getting everybody to work together as a cohesive team is, is absolutely vital. But everybody's got their own roles uh, within the team. So uh, if a problem occurs... We all have our, our various uh, uh, skills and strengths, and uh, we, we obviously uh, play upon those and use them effectively. Absolutely. And would you say that there are any examples of um, leadership figures who've maybe influenced your style of um, leadership or maybe even been an inspiration to you as well? Uh, there's been quite a few people over my, over my journey as, as, a, as a director. Um, but there's, I, I, can't, I can't name names. <laughs> But uh, there are certain uh, business leaders out there. Uh, I work for a Scandinavian group, and the owners of the Scandinavian group 
uh, had exceptional skills uh, in finances and business, business administration. So I, I learned an awful lot from them. Uh, again, attention to detail, the Scandinavians, particularly the Finns, are, uh, are very direct and they're very good at what they do. So uh, I, I gained an awful lot of knowledge uh, through working through that group. Now, what was really interesting about what you mentioned uh, just there, Michael, is the fact that um, you won't name names as such with these examples because it really shines a light on the fact that good examples of effective leadership can quite often go unseen, really go under the radar, especially in business. Because when one thinks of a leader, they instantly think of people in the political sphere, people who are celebrities, sports personalities, etc. With that in mind, do you think that good leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? Uh, no, no, I don't actually. Uh, that there are some outstanding leaders in the UK, um, and the, again, I can't, <laughs> I can't name names uh, immediately. But um, yes, we we do have uh, some some uh, international talent for sure. And do you think some of these people who are examples of good leaders um, in their own way, do you think that they are ready-made, born with those qualities, uh, perhaps um, one way of phrasing it, or is that something that you think somebody can actually develop and learn as they go throughout their life and their career? I, I always refer to it as the rough diamond. The, there are, in, uh, coming through universities, coming through colleges, and also just entrepreneurs who are rough diamonds, and if they get under the, the guidance of the right a leader or, or manager, they can become quite outstanding in their fields. Absolutely, because um, you mentioned earlier that um, idea of the journey that people go on in terms of becoming leaders as well and how that's really important um, in terms of development. Um, did you always imagine yourself, Michael, that you would end up in a position of leadership yourself um, early in your career? No, no, I didn't, to be honest with you. I was very ambitious, uh, but then, as, as I explained, I went uh, to the Royal Air Force and they, and they gave me some focus. And then when I came out of the Royal Air Force, I went straight into the uh, Scandinavian group and uh, became their global managing director. But that was really uh, with a lot of help and guidance from some very senior people uh, in, in uh, Finland. They, they did an awfully good job with me. And based upon your own experience, if somebody who were about to start their first day in a leadership role were to sit down in front of you, what advice do you think that you would give them? A lead by example. Um, attention to detail, as I said before, is, is absolutely vital. Uh, it all depends on, on the role that they're actually taking, but um, just put as much enthusiasm and effort into, into the role and uh, you'll come out extremely well at the other side. Absolutely. And um, do give me an idea as uh, well, Michael, that once, of course, um, the whole COVID-19 situation subsides, what you imagine the next 12 months are going to hold for yourself, for QV controls, and what fundamentally you'd also like to achieve in that time as well? Well, it's it's going to be a case of uh, going to all of our customers directly, seeing how we can help them get back on track because uh, everyone is, is focused on saving energy for the uh, Carbon Zero 2050 uh, policy. So uh, we've got to get that moving again because everything's just completely on hold at the moment. And what we do is we help customers uh, maximize the energy savings within their buildings. It's not just lighting, it's, it's a whole host of technologies. So it's, it's getting that ball rolling again so that people can start to save energy and uh, become more efficient. 
Absolutely. And um, it's not just, of course, um, shifting focus back onto carbon neutral by 2050 as well, um, but also where we're going to be in very changing economic times as well, aren't we? We're already seeing the uh, the rules of borrowing being rewritten, as it were. So it is going to be a very changed business environment once all sort of gets back to normality, isn't it? It, it certainly will do. I've already seen and we've all seen uh, certain customers starting to uh, sell and close properties, close shops. Uh, certain businesses uh, won't be able to survive this period, I, I don't believe. So the, the, there will be a lot of changes in, in the marketplace itself, maybe mergers, acquisitions. So let's see how it goes. But we're, we're going to be uh, moving forward with the aim of uh, making everyone efficient and uh, focusing uh, the, the, our business to make sure that we maximize everything for them. Fantastic. And um, has um, business, um, from your point of view, been encouraged by what it's been hearing from the government as well during this time? Absolutely. I think they've done it positively, proactively. They've come up with some very good messages. Uh, Rivi's uh, speech <laughs> uh, two weeks after becoming Chancellor was, was quite amazing. I think it's, it's, he's very dynamic for sure. So they, they are thinking uh, very much uh, to keep the economy moving forward. They're looking out for uh, businesses like ours uh, to make sure that we can survive. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about uh, the future moving forward. Absolutely. And let's hope we start seeing that light at the end of the tunnel and that upward trajectory very much sooner rather than later. Um, Michael, um, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure um, speaking to you on the uh, the programme today. Um, what I think as well is that it would be absolutely fantastic perhaps to even have you back on the programme in a few months time to look at all of this retrospectively and see how things have panned out um, as well in that respect. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and uh, talk about this for the benefit of our listeners. Absolute pleasure. It's been fantastic having you. Um, We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dress-Cothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Scott that you gave me that nickname? Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... 
Warnie got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray 
He looked like he'd aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? 
Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game and understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, 
and we had to move it. In fact, we didn't have to move it at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is, 
in some ways more pressing is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary yeah. thing well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um absolutely. no it, absolutely yeah. you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. potentially a, 
a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.